battle like Iraq or Afghanistan, although there are some that do wake up in that battle each day. I'm speaking of a struggle against, as Paul put it, the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. In other words, a spiritual battle. And none of us are on the sidelines in this spiritual battle. None of us are taking R&R. All of us are in this spiritual fight every single day. The bad news is we cannot win this fight on our own. The enemy, Satan, is simply too powerful. The good news is, is that we cannot lose this fight if we engage the enemy in accordance with God's plan and not our own. If God is with us, who can be against us? The answer is no one, not even Satan. When we engage in this battle in accordance with God's plan, and under his protective wings, victory is assured. So it's really one of those either-or situations. Either we do it God's way and are victorious, and victory is certain, or we do it our way, and defeat is certain. In verses 14 through 17 of chapter 6, Paul described the armor that the believer is to utilize against the enemy. This was our study last week. Truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace, faith, salvation, and the Word of God. There is, of course, some overlap between these. Truth could refer to both God's revealed truth and the Christian's own truthfulness. What I mean by that is specifically a lifestyle that reflects truth. Sometimes we call that integrity, personal integrity. Righteous conduct, as we studied last week, seems to be in view as well as the righteousness of Christ that becomes ours at the moment we place our faith in Christ. Theologians call that justification. At the moment we're justified and declared righteous, righteous conduct then becomes the norm or the expected norm for us. We're expected as Christians to live consistently with our justified position in Christ or our positional justification. This has been one of the themes that Paul has woven through his letter to the Ephesians from beginning all the way to the end. The idea of living consistently with who we are in Christ. In order to do that, first we have to explain who we are in Christ. Hence a lot of chapter 1, chapter 2, and even in chapter 3. And then in the last three chapters, he has motivated us, he's encouraged us, he's exhorted us to live consistently with who we found out we were in the first three chapters. As a soldier's breastplate protected his chest from enemy attacks, so living righteously, the breastplate of righteousness, living righteously, living consistently with our positional righteousness, guards the believer's heart against the assaults of the devil. When we don't live consistently with who we are in Christ, then we are a spinning target. We are an easy target for Satan. And so many of us get into that way too frequently. While the believer has the opportunity and the responsibility to share the gospel when that is appropriate, that's not what Paul is really talking about here when he talks about the gospel of peace. Believers are called to stand firm against the onslaught of evil forces because we are firmly rooted in the gospel of peace. My 
favorite verses in all the Bible is, I know in whom I have believed, Paul says. I know in whom I have believed. And I am confident that he is able to guard that which I have entrusted to him until that day. I can stand firm in the spiritual fight because I know I have eternal life. I know I can't lose my eternal life. In fact, if I can lose my eternal life, they're calling it something, it shouldn't be called eternal life. It should be called something else. But the Bible is very specific that this is one of the things that I can count on. And because I can count on that, I know I can be victorious in the spiritual life. The faith that he is speaking about enables the believer to stand firm in the spiritual battle. And that faith is twofold. It's trust, a synonym for faith. It's trust in all that God has revealed. And it's active application of that trust at the moment of spiritual attack. Do you call our study of the Epistle of James? The Epistle of James was largely about behaving well in trials. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various kinds of trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have that perfecting work that we might be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. So that when a trial comes up, we can pass it. And remember, one of the things that James told us to do in that epistle was to be quick to hear. And I hope you also remember that what he meant by being quick to hear was not just listening to it, not just taking notes, not just putting a CD in in the car and thinking about something else on the way to work while it plays and thinking we've done our spiritual duties for the day, kind of spirituality by being there kind of thing. Not that. Sure, we have to learn it first, and we don't want to discard that, but we also have to do something with it. And that's what Paul is speaking about when he speaks about faith. It's trust in all that God has revealed, but it's also active application of that trust or even the truth at the moment of spiritual attack. The last two, the salvation or deliverance that Paul speaks of, refers to present and future deliverance when we're under attack by Satan. You see, we've already received past deliverance from the eternal penalty of sin. So when Paul talks about putting on salvation, he can't really be speaking about the salvation we've already received. He must be speaking about another use of that term, sozo. The Greek term sozo means a rescue or a deliverance, to be rescued from a position of danger into a position of safety. To be rescued in in Old Testament sense, David would say, Oh, Lord, save me. He wasn't talking about his eternal life there. That was already taken care of. He was talking about perhaps rescue from someone like Saul or Absalom and taking him and putting him in a place of safety. In the New Testament, when that idea is used, it's typically speaking of taking us from a position of danger where we're condemned in the eternal penalty of sin and placing us into a position of rescue where we have eternal life. So this particular type of salvation that's referred to here is a little bit more like it's a cross between the Old Testament and the New Testament uses of the the word in that Paul, Paul is speaking of God rescuing us from a position of danger when we're in the spiritual conflict and placing us into a position of safety in that spiritual conflict. We receive or we appropriate this present deliverance or this present salvation, if you prefer the term. But don't get it confused with the salvation from the eternal penalty of sin. We appropriate that by prayer. The final is the Word, the Word of God. But this is not logos. There's two different words for word in Greek, two different terms for word in Greek. One is logos. That's John chapter 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. 
The Word was with God. The Word was God. That refers to Jesus Christ. And that also can refer to Jesus Christ individually, Jesus Christ incarnate, or the Word of God, the Scriptures. This is a different use of the word, word. It's the Greek term rhema, and it refers to the utterance of God rather than to the written word itself. In other words, what Paul speaks of here in this last of the pieces of armor is the appropriate citation of Scripture in a particular situation. For example, if, if we're up against a, an enemy that looks really, really strong to us, we might have the Scripture come to mind, the battle is the Lord's. We may, if, if we find ourselves in a lot of anxiety in this spiritual conflict, we may, we may actually verbalize the Scripture that's found in Paul's letter to the Philippians, stop worrying about anything, but in everything by means of prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God that passes all understanding shall guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. We might think of, of a phrase like, Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. Yea, I will help thee, I will strengthen thee, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That's what is meant by a rhema word. Not the way it's used in some more popular circles today, where people come say, I have a rhema word from God from you. Now, if you've got a rhema word from God for me, it better be consistent with what's in the Logos word. It better not be, I am the Lord, your God, and I'm telling you that you need to do this. Don't waste your time. And you're not with me anyway. But if you come and say, I have a rhema word from God, listen, Bruce, I know you're under a lot of stress. And I love you, and I just wanted you to know God's going to take care of you. Because the scriptures tell us, fear thou not, for I'm with thee. You see, that's a rhema word from God. When you're quoting scripture back, not coming up with something that's not already scriptural. So we see the armor of God, truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace, faith, salvation, and the word of God. Now you notice we didn't review so much the, the armor itself or the metaphor that Paul uses. And that was purposeful. Because sometimes when people study this passage, we get so wrapped up in the belt, the shield, the sword, the helmet, that we miss that those are just metaphors. The real, the thing that we really need to study are what the metaphors represent. And that is truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace, faith, salvation, and the word of God. Now verse 18. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit with this in view. Be on the, the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. The main idea in verse 18 is expressed in two participles, praying and maintaining alertness. Remember, this is a spiritual battle, praying and maintaining alertness. There's, there's long been a discussion as to where these two activities fit in in the whole armor of God metaphor. Some people think they're the seventh piece of armor, praying and being alert. That's not likely, given the way that Paul has structured this and is presenting it. More likely, Paul is saying that in view of the imminence of attack, as believers take up the last two pieces, you see these, uh, this, uh, the idea of praying and being alert, refer back to verse 17. As we take up these last two pieces, the last two, the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, 
This is to be done in a constant state of prayer. So how do we do this? We do it by means of a constant state of prayer and alertness. The, the word translated prayer, prosukes, is a general word for communication with the Almighty. That's really what prayer is. It's communication with God. It's, by and large, a one-way communication, although sometimes, have you ever had this happening? You'd be praying, and it's not like you hear an audible voice, but a thought comes to your head. That's happened to me when I've been studying from time to time. You'll sit down as you come across something really difficult, and you say, Lord, I, I'm at an impasse here. You come, come to something else, and all of a sudden, the thought will kind of come in your head, okay, check this, or do that, or maybe this is what it is. Not in a real mystical sort of way, but in a, in a real sort of way. But most of the time, prayer is a one-way communication. This is us expressing our praise, adoration, thanksgiving, confession, petitions, and requests to God. So, prosukes is a general word for communication with the Almighty. But the term translated petition, deseos, is a more specific word meaning request, petition, or entreaty. It carries the idea of pleading or begging and affirms the sense of urgency that is woven through this entire passage from chapter 6, verse 10, all the way through 20. I was asked one time by somebody, what do you think about begging God for something? I've got no problem. Now, don't, you don't beg him for your salvation. You exercise faith for that. But as a believer, all that means, at least all it means in the Greek text, is a very passionate, enthusiastic, to use a biblical word, fervent prayer. No, it's actually a biblical idea. I wouldn't have no problem with it at all. It's a biblical idea. And if you've got a problem with it, then there are certain verses like this one that you'd have to deal with. It doesn't come across quite as powerfully in the English text as it, as it would if you understood the meaning of uh, the seos, but it's there. It's, it is an intense request. Prayer is to be a constant in the believer's life, and it's to be done by means of the Holy Spirit. Biblically, prayer is directed to the Father, in the name of the Son, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Every now and then you'll hear someone pray to Jesus. And I know you know our shoulders can get a little tight when that happens in a prayer meeting or something. Don't let that don't let it bother you as badly as it, it may. Jesus is God as well, and there is a place in, in the Upper Room Discourse where Jesus does say, say, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So there is biblical precedent for it. I don't think it's as strong as some other people think. People ask me sometimes, why do I pray to the Father? The reason I pray to the Father is because that's Jesus, when he was teaching his disciples how to pray, said, I want you to pray this way. And the prayers were addressed to the Father. So if there's a proper protocol, if you like, then that's the way we ought to pray. And because that's the suggestion, the commandment of our Lord himself. But if someone prays to Jesus, don't look at him like they're some sort of immature believer. That's just perhaps their preference. I wouldn't do it that way, but that's their preference. In the name of the Son, I know this is a, a line that gets thrown at the end of a lot of prayers for thanking God for the food, for example. Father, thank you for the food. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this, I don't know how you can get in Jesus' name, amen, all into one syllable, but sometimes people can do it. 
But that's not really what it's meant. It's not to be something magical that's placed on the end of a prayer. I heard somebody pray one time, Father, in the name of Jesus, and then give their prayer and everything, and they said amen. I assume some people are, what's the, something wrong with that? She didn't say in Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> no orthodoxy there. Well, no, he said it at the beginning. Didn't you hear him? He said it at the beginning. In Jesus' name, I approach you. You see, the reason we can go to the Father at all is because of Jesus. Because we're associated with him, the Father listens to us. So that's the whole in Jesus' name thing. And if you want to say it at the beginning, say it at the beginning. If you want to say it at the end, say it at the end. If you don't want to say it, you don't have to say it. As long as you're thinking it. As long as you know when you're praying that the only reason God's going to hear me positionally is because I'm rightly related to his son, Jesus Christ. And my advice is, in public prayer, it's a good thing to do. Because you don't want to upset people unnecessarily. They don't know what you're thinking, and by very definition, public prayer is out loud, so it would be more appropriate to do it. By means of the Holy Spirit, our prayers are empowered by the Holy Spirit, or they're not heard. One of the beautiful things that Paul writes in the letter to the Romans is that the Holy Spirit translates our prayers into something that the Father can't answer. Now, that doesn't mean that we should just pray in some sort of heavenly unknown language and let the Holy Spirit take over. That's, Paul argues really specifically against that, I believe, in Romans in the First Corinthians chapter 14. But it does mean that we don't have to fret. Have you ever come across a prayer request sometimes and you just start scratching your head saying, I really don't even know how to pray that prayer. I know the situation, but I'm not smart enough to figure out how this can best work out for God's glory. And so when I come to that, I, I tell the Father that. He already knows it. I'm telling him something that he already knows. But Father, I have no idea the right way to pray for this. But I'm going to lift this person up to you and have your way with them. Do whatever is going to glorify you the most, however you want to deliver them. I can't figure out a way it's going to happen, but I leave that to you. Fortunately, the Holy Spirit will translate that prayer into something the Father can't answer, assuming we're being humble. And I also believe if we happen to get it wrong, let's say somebody is in need of a job very badly, we may pray, Father, help them get that job. The Holy Spirit may translate it, no, Father, don't help them get that job. <laughs> help them get the other one. So we can have confidence in prayer that way. But prayer is directed to the Father in the name of the Son, and by means of, or under the power of, the influence of the Holy Spirit. As believers take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, we should pray at every opportunity. Through every prayer and petition, remembering that others are in the spiritual fight with us. We're not just to pray for ourselves to pray on behalf of others. And we're to be watchful for opportunities to pray. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times by means of under the empowering ministry of the Holy Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition and watch for all the saints. Two things we need to review here. One is, it's okay to pray for yourself. There's no lack of spirituality whatsoever when you pray for yourself. That's, you should do that. But two, we shouldn't pray exclusively for ourselves. 
We shouldn't pray exclusively for others or exclusively for ourselves. We should pray for both. We need to, we need to pray for ourselves, but let's don't forget others. Sometimes when we find ourselves so wrapped up in our own difficulties, here's a little test I think we can do for prayer. How much time are you spending in prayer on your own problems? How much time are you spending in prayer on other believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and what you're going through? Think about this example. If you find yourself so overwhelmed that all you're praying about is yourself, that may be one of the problems that you're facing. That you're only getting half of this verse accomplished. In this spiritual fight, we've got to realize that we're in it. Every day when I wake up, I need to realize I'm in a spiritual battle today. Actually, Satan didn't take the 8 or 10 or 12 hours off or whatever it was. It's Satan taking the 16 hours. Not happening, right? Some of you. He didn't take that time off. He's, he's still working. But my point is, when you wake up in the morning, you're in a spiritual fight. You're in a battle. But guess who else is? Your lovely wife, your husband, your children, your neighbor, your pastor, associate pastor, your deacon, the person who sits next to you at the church on Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday. We're all in this spiritual fight. And as with an army, if, a, if an army, I, just, I know the phrase for the army now is the army of one. I kind of get that because there's a whole superhero motif out there in the movies and things like that. And I, I get the whole marketing thing. But, no, it's an army, it's a team. Everybody needs to support everybody else. Everybody's got a role. Well, the body of Christ is a team as well. Everybody's got a role. We're all in this together. I would urge you to pray first. As soon as you wake up in the morning, understanding that you're in a spiritual conflict, pray first for yourself. Help me, Father, in this spiritual fight. But also pray for those that are closest to you. Because they're waking up to the same spiritual conflict. Sometimes we get so wrapped up in ourselves that we don't realize other people are suffering too. Those other people have feelings, they have a soul, they have difficulties in their life, just like you do, just like I do. They have self-consciousness, they have thoughts that are going all the time, just like you do, just like I do. So we need to pray for other people. That's what Paul means, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times. What he means is pray consistently. In the Spirit, or by means of the Spirit, Spirit, with this in view, be on the alert. That means look for opportunities to pray for people. Don't run away from prayer meetings. Run toward them. And if you're wondering, sometimes people say, well, I just can't get my prayer life organized. Do this. Take one of those little index cards that's big enough to fit in your pocket and jot some things down. Just jot some names down. People that you know are having difficulties. And that way, when you stop for a coffee break at work, or you're hopefully not driving in the middle of traffic, or perhaps you're stopped in traffic, you can pull that out, and rather than text, which is, we say it's not a very good idea in the car anymore, but rather than text, maybe you could look at that and pray. Be on the alert. Watch for opportunities to pray for others. Remember what Paul's doing in these verses 10 through 20 as he concludes this history. He's making sure that we understand that he told us who we are in Christ, how we should behave as a result of who we are in Christ, 
whole unity idea. But then he tells us there's going to be consequences. Satan doesn't want to be inconsistent with who we are. He doesn't want us to be unified in the body of Christ. So there will be conflict. There will be opposition. And we're to stand firm against that opposition. But one of the ways that we stand firm is by means of prayer. Not just for ourselves. A strong body of believers is going to be a praying body. You find a church that has difficulty getting a quorum together to pray. And you're going to find a church that's not very healthy. I don't care how educated the pastor is or the associate pastor or youth pastor or whoever it may be. If a church won't pray, something wrong with the spiritual life of that church. And that church is going to be in trouble. Because Satan is out there just waiting for an opportunity. Just waiting for an opening. There needs to be a barrage of prayer going out daily. Not only for yourself, but all the people you see in the church. I think one, I listened to this one time, it's okay to take names. Take names. Doesn't it seem like God really has a plan for my life? I see this person going that place and doing this internship and having this teaching this Bible class. I don't see him doing anything in my life. Or I really can't get a sense of direction about which way I should go. Or I'm too old for the mission field. I'd like to go, but I seem to be too old for the mission field. Or I can't teach. Or I'm stuck at home. Or I'm stuck in this nursing home or this assisted living facility. What can I do? find yourself down about your spiritual life, you probably become at least a partial casualty in the spiritual conflict. And I would suggest two things. First, I would suggest scripture memory. A few moments ago we talked about a rhema word from God. Rhema word is, is being able to speak back that which is in the written word. How are you going to do that if you don't have a stockpile of scripture in your soul? Scripture memory is wonderful for the church. Because in order to do it, you've got to concentrate on these verses, verses on a regular basis. And that's what you're putting in your mind all the time, rather than some of the other things that can creep in. So the first thing I suggest, if you find yourself stuck in some sort of spiritual rut, I would suggest scripture memory. But I would also suggest prayer. Focus on your prayer. And it could be when you start to focus on your prayer life, you find yourself wandering after just a couple of minutes. Well, okay, we'll stay for a couple of minutes and close the prayer. And then come back a bit later and pray again. If you find yourself wandering again, pray for a couple of minutes and close the prayer. But if you'll consistently pray, then you'll find over a period of time your prayer life will become more and more and more intense and more effective. You may have to use the talk. But, but don't quit praying because you say, well, I get two minutes into it, my mind starts wandering other places. Well, that's symptomatic of the spiritual life that needs to be prayed. Now, these aren't the only things. Certainly, that the intake of the Word of God is crucial, but I assume you knew that. But if you find yourself in a spiritual life and you are taking in the Word of God on a regular basis, I would suggest continual prayer. Scriptural memory and prayer. Then in verses 19 and 20, 
Paul expresses his own need for prayer, and he's humble enough to ask for it. So Paul says in verse 19, And pray on my behalf that utterance be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. It has always been He doesn't pray that his circumstances would go away. Now, not that it's wrong to do that. But what Paul prays here is that he will have effectiveness in ministry where God has chosen to put him at that point in time. See, earlier in the epistle, Paul talks about, he, Paul refers to himself as a prisoner of the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 4. Paul realizes that if it wasn't for God, he wouldn't be in that prison. So he's not asking the Ephesian believers, pray me out of prison, please. Although it would have been legitimate if he would have done it. But that's not the direction he takes. What he's, what he's asking prayer for here is that while he's there, he'll have an effective ministry. In Paul's mind, he's where he's supposed to be and he's doing what he's supposed to do. It must have seemed a bit ironic to him. Don't you think? He was an ambassador for Christ, proclaiming life-giving truth. Then he found himself in chains, under house arrest in Rome. But he's not complaining. He's simply asking those who care about him, and the Ephesians did care about him, to pray for the effectiveness of his message. Some see the admission here, or the prayer for boldness, as an admission of need in Paul's life. That he needed boldness, meaning that sometimes he didn't have boldness. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what he's praying for. All of us, all of us, shy away at times from opportunities to minister. We all need boldness. Even the Apostle Paul needed boldness. Now, by that, I mean the right kind of boldness. Loving, kind, appropriate to the situation boldness. I'm not talking about a boldness that we just work ourselves up with emotionally. And we have to have a crack. Or we approach somebody at the mall and say, You want to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior? Not today. Well, that's not the kind of boldness that I'm talking about. I'm also not talking about the kind of boldness that that I had presented to me one time at a steak and egg up near the airport. I was on my way to Portland for a seminar. This was before I was in ministry. And I sat down to eat a nice meal before I went up there because I kind of knew the group that I was going to be with. They were real health food nuts. I wasn't going to get a decent steak the whole time. So I'm going to stop and get me a decent meal before I left. And I was really looking forward to the meal. And I'm sitting there at a table for two by myself. And a lady walked up. We'd be basically over and and coming in like this, and, and the girl says, "Hey, might be nice to have something to eat." So well, suit yourself, you know. So she she sat down there, and I'm thinking, I'm not buying this. I'm not buying the lunch. I don't, I don't even know who's here. I'm thinking, I hope I don't know who it is. I didn't know. Who it was. I'm 
<laughs> Never saw her before in my life. Or since. She starts, she starts in and just, I could tell what it was. She, she was cursing because she was using God. So I listened, and you know, she's kindly, and after a while, I said, I am a Christian myself. I appreciate you using that. She said, no. And then she didn't want me to buy a van and drive out by the field. I said, that's not, it's not the right transition for me. You know, I really don't think it is. That's boldness, but it's the wrong kind of boldness. It was not appropriate to the situation kind of boldness. The mystery of the gospel that he speaks of here is not so much the gospel that you might think about when we use that term. The good news about Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ died for our sins, he's saved, he raised again on the third day. The fact that the content of the gospel that Paul speaks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that's not really what's being mentioned here. Paul is speaking of the same mystery that he's been talking about from beginning to end, and that is that Jews and Gentiles are one in Christ. Remember that as Paul is in this house arrest, that he is awaiting trial before Caesar. And fortunately, because the book of Acts ends with Paul in prison, we don't ever know the specifics of the outcome of that trial that he had with Caesar. Remember, he's writing this somewhere between 60 and 62 A.D. He won't die until 68. He is imprisoned again, but he apparently is released from prison after he writes to Caesar. We don't know about how that happened. We can't even say for sure he met with Caesar, but we assume he did because he was supposed to. That's why he's in Rome in the first place. He had appealed to Caesar. So there's another reference, there's another possible reference to this boldness that Paul's speaking of. He may not be simply referring to boldness in the interaction that he's having with people on a day-to-day basis, although that's likely. He might be referring to the boldness that he needs to have before he stands before what everybody else thinks is the most powerful person in the world. I would think if God was evaluating who the most powerful person in the world was at the time, humanly speaking, it was Caesar that probably mattered most, not the Apostle Paul. However, it it would have been a bit intimidating to face even Paul. So it very well could be that he was asking for prayer for boldness in this meeting that he was going to have with Jesus. The Romans looked on the Christians as a sect of the Jews. And the Jews considered Christians to be a heretical group. So in the trial that Paul will have before Caesar, he needed to make clear to Caesar that Christians were neither a Jewish sect or a heretical group. They were new entities body of Christ, the church, composed of both Jews and Gentiles. That very well could be what Paul is saying. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with perseverance and petition for all the saints, and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth, to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to. A consistent and intense prayer life is a vital component if the believer is to come out on top. 